0: Welcome back to the La Brea Purveyor. I am your purveyor, Pete Phillips, and I realize that I've never told you what a purveyor is. One dictionary definition, the one that I'm leaning on, is a person or company that supplies something. And I am here to supply you with as much information as I can about the NBC adventure sci-fi drama La Brea. And holy cow, did you see that premiere? I had taken a sleeping pill before I watched it, uh, so I was a little bit spacey on my first watch, but uh, it was still everything that I expected it to be. It was very exciting as it set the stage for the upcoming season. However, I think it could have been more exciting if I hadn't seen the trailer for Season 2. But there's still some unpredictable moves that happen in the uh, episode. I feel like they were on a small scale rather than big plot shifts. And you guys know by now, that's what I'm after episode recap. Season 2 premieres in Los Angeles. Again. We can tell because it's sunny, there's water, the Hollywood sign is in view, and a family is going to go sit on the grass and chill in Griffith Park, even though the dad is sick of all this heat. But the little girl, Carly, asks if she can take the dog for a walk. She drops the dog's leash almost immediately and then starts calling after the dog, which is named Doc, I assumed that she was yelling dog with a kind of like accent, but the closed captions told me that she is saying the dog's name, which is Doc. And to me, having a dog named Doc is like having a hamster named Amster or a cat named Catherine that you call Cat for short. And don't think I will stop there. It's like having a bird that you named Birdie. <laughs> anyway, the ground shakes and the Hollywood sign shakes with it. Parts of the sign sink into a new sinkhole that appears, while other parts slide away towards the park. Like Carly is going to take an H to the face. But in the end, she's safe, and so is Dr. Dog. But the big thing here is that there is a new hole, and it ate the Hollywood sign. The Hollywood sign is actually located on Mount Lee, The original sign was erected in 1923 and originally read Hollywood Land to promote the name of a new housing development in the hills above the Hollywood districts of Los Angeles. Real estate developers Woodruff and Schultz called their development Hollywood Land and advertised it as a, quote, "...superb environment without excessive cost on the Hollywood side of the hills." Uh, But eventually the sign fell into disrepair and the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce entered into a contract with the city of Los Angeles Parks Department to repair and rebuild the sign. The contract stipulated that land would be removed to spell Hollywood and reflect the district, not just the Hollywood land housing development. After this big incident at Mount Lee, we flip to 10,000 B.C., It's been about a day since the finale happened, so we're picking up without a lapse in time. I kind of thought that that's where they were going to go with things, sort of like move things ahead three months or something like that. But already Sam and Levi are interrogating Silas. They think that since Aldridge outed him as being one of the people responsible for the holes, along with her, that he must know a way to get back to 2022, or at least get Riley and Josh back from 1988. There are loose connections there, but I guess I get it. He's the only person left to blame. Also, Eve runs down our character updates with Ty, just in case you forgot where anybody was. What about Mary Beth and Lucas? Any word on them? No. No one's been able to find them. With Mary Beth's injuries, I'm getting really concerned. Yeah. And then there's Aldridge and there's Scott and Veronica. They're all missing. Just, at least when Josh was here, I had somebody. Now. I'm all alone. You're not alone, Eve. I happen to be excellent company. Yes, Yes, you are. And in addition to all of those, Sam, our Navy SEAL doctor, is kind of on the edge. But we'll cover that in a minute. Meanwhile, Team Gazella, that would be Gavin, Izzy, and Ella, have a day in 10,000 BC under their belt now. Gavin has a spear, so that's a plus, but everyone is kind of pissed. Ella's like, why didn't we bring any stuff with us? And that's a good question. It's not like you didn't know where you were going, after all. They brought no food, no weapons, no tents. But who needs that stuff when you have Gavin? He goes food hunting and throws a spear at a Warthog. Hey, Pumba, Come over here! Huh? And takes it down in one shot. Call him Niraj Chopra, because he knows how to throw. Niraj Chopra is actually a gold medal winning javelin thrower, but you guys knew that, right? So you got the joke. Of course, after he makes contact, a giant woolly rhino comes out and chases him. But Gavin is basically a superhero in this world, so he is able to outrun a gigantic woolly rhinoceros. Then we see Josh and Riley waking up in the woods. They learn that they're totally in 1988. And that's because a red convertible blows past them on the road, and the riders throw out a cassette tape. You gotta wonder who the artist on that tape was. Because even when Josh picks it up, He just drops it on the ground before they move on. And as they do move up the road on foot, they see Isaiah and Lily getting picked up by a bunch of nuns. You remember this from last season. Riley instinctively goes to save them, but Josh reminds her that those two need to be on their own journey, which would result in the birth of Josh. But to this proposition, Riley says, what about us? And lastly, we check in with Aldridge and Scott. He is meditating in front of a CGI sunflower field, and she is waking up from being in a deep sleep. She tells Scott that the people in the building, the one that they are going to, will want to kill her, and if he comes with her, they'll probably want to kill him too. But she also says that if he doesn't come, then, quote, everyone you care about where you're from will die. Whether it's fear for the outcome or curiosity of what's in that building, Scott is ready to proceed. Back at the clearing, Sam is now finally going overboard. I don't know if this is about his anxiety medication or if he's melting down because Riley is gone, but regardless, he won't tell anyone what is going on. Instead, he pulls Silas out to the woods and threatens to shoot him in the head if he doesn't tell them how to get his daughter back. Silas, who's gone from pelt to peacoat, says that he can't do anything, but Aldridge sure can. Sam! Put the gun down! Tell me how to bring my daughter back. You... This isn't who you are. Sam. Truth is, I can't bring your daughter back. But there's someone who can. Rebecca Aldridge. Aldridge is missing. I can help you find her. There's a place in the woods, day's journey due north. What kind of place? We need details. Building made of glass and steel. It's 30 stories high. You won't miss it. Your only chance to save your children is to find Rebecca. That glass building is where she's headed. I'm gonna go find Aldridge in that building. I'm going with you. You two go verify what he said. I'll make sure he doesn't leave the truck until you get back. Shouldn't he say alone with Silas? He's not okay. Even Levi head out to make sure that the story is true, because if it is, then they'll cut Silas loose. Oh, And for some reason, that college professor-looking guy is still around. His name is Judah. I'm not happy about this. Because Billy and Tony aren't around. Our traffic cop isn't around. Our barcoded cow isn't around. And these are people that I grew to care about. Over with Gazella, Ella is like, maybe I shouldn't have come here. You're absolutely correct. Gavin and Ella are talking to each other like they're childhood friends. Remember when we met at the clearing? Like, it's totally normal. Neither is having visions anymore, because they accept that the visions were actually childhood memories, hence their chummy stories. Gavin gives her a pep talk, probably so that, you know, she doesn't become dead weight, dragging the whole trio down. She's really got to find the Lily inside of her, because Lily was kind of a badass. Izzy went to go get water, but she slipped and her prosthetic leg is cracked, which doesn't bode well for the time, you know, getting a replacement and all. Instead of being honest and open about her situation, she hides it from her father and Ella. Ty is in a weird diplomatic spot because Sam and Levi want to keep Silas and torture him until he tells them what they want to know, which to me is a little unclear still. But Para has come with her fort friends, and they brought food, and they're also looking to pick up Silas and take him back home. But Ty has to ask for more time, and Para trusts him. So she complies, but I kind of already see that strong veneer crack in this scene. I'm afraid that if this backfires, then Paro won't trust Ty anymore. And I hope that it all works out like, you know, TV always does, but just in case I'm a little concerned. Levi and Eve are talking on their walk. It's a weird talk. He says the most romantic thing, I left you once, I won't do that again. And I feel like that doesn't really help when it comes to trust issues. They also hear a clicking, and it turns out to be Lucas playing with a lighter. He is... different. Eve lost Josh to 1988, but Lucas lost Mary Beth to... eternity. So, he's feeling some abandonment vibes. And when they hear screaming in the distance, and they go to investigate, they see Veronica being dragged by some scary-looking guardsmen. And Lucas is like, I am not going to lose anyone else. In the meantime, Josh and Riley break into a house in 1988 that's been abandoned for about a week while the homeowners are in Catalina. Immediately, they gorge themselves on junk food. Josh says, mmm, cold pizza, which is curious. I don't really hate cold pizza, but it's not the first thing that I would be happy to eat after traveling 12,000 years. Josh, go put those corn dogs back. Also, if the homeowners knew that they were going to Catalina for a week, why did they leave behind a pizza in the fridge? Like, that shouldn't be lasting a week. Now, I know from the previews that the scary guardsmen are called the exiles, and so to excuse me from saying guardsmen a hundred times in this episode, because I know that's not the right word, I'm going to use the term exiles. And I'll tell you, these exiles look mean. They also have other prisoners, not just Veronica, but they have female guards too, which I really love to see in the progressive 10,000 BC. Lucas is ready to jump right in and get Veronica, but our team is severely outnumbered. So in the tussle, Eve is taken captive. Lucas and Veronica and Levi mostly escape. Levi has an altercation with one guard that ends with a gunshot happening, but it's a little unclear what the result is. I think he just bopped the guy in the head with his gun, because if he shot the guy dead, there's going to be some major issues with the exiles coming up. Riley and Josh in 1988... They're just watching ALF on TV, and Josh can't get enough of it. I God, Josh! He says it's better than 10,000 BC, but I don't think Riley is convinced. It feels like Josh is treating things like he's on vacation and could care less about being away from his family. But Riley is a bit more sentimental and not focused on starting a new life with Josh. She has no home, she has no family, she has nothing but Josh. Yeah, it is pretty bad dude. He's trying to woo her in some way that isn't working. Uh, it, it's almost like he feels like since they kissed, he has some leverage, but like he's still the same Josh. And Riley is not the same. She's really feeling some post-traumatic effects of losing everything 24 hours ago. Gavin, Izzy, and Ella meet a baby woolly rhino. And he's so cute, and Izzy makes friends with it, of course. They're so tight that... They just figure they should follow it wherever it's going because it wouldn't be heading to anywhere dangerous like to its two huge-ass parents. Suddenly, Gavin is a woolly rhino expert. And I won't lie, I didn't know about woolly rhinos existing before this, but Gavin can identify them, escape them, and tell you that they may as well be blind. He could have been more general and said all rhinos have bad eyesight, but he went right for the woolly rhino. Whatever, man. So now Team Gazelle is looking at two full-grown woolly rhinos and their playful baby rhino. And they're going to try to creep across the wide greenery quietly because they are trying to evade another woolly rhino that's been hunting them. Uh, seriously? For such a rhino whiz, Gavin kind of skipped the whole part about woolly rhinos being into greens. From Wikipedia, woolly rhinoceros is mostly fed on greens and sedges. Its long, slanted head with downward-facing posture and tooth structure all helped it graze on vegetation. It had a wider upper lip like that of the white rhinoceros, which allowed it to easily pluck vegetation directly from the ground. Pollen analysis shows it also ate woody plants, including conifers, willows, and alders, among flowers, forbs, and mosses. Isotope studies on horns show that the woolly rhinoceros had a seasonal diet, Different areas of horn growth suggest that it mainly grazed in the summer while browsed for shrubs and branches in the winter. In the effort to cross the field, Izzy falls because of her prosthetic issues and she just can't stop shouting about it, even though we know that rhinoceroses can hear. Suddenly, one rhino parent turns and charges at Team Gazella. Looks like a rhino's heading this way! But the rhino parent is actually charging at the rhino hunter, who has somehow shown up behind them, but I guess really quietly so that they couldn't hear it, even though it's a giant (sighs) breathing (laughs) creature. And all this time, I'm wondering, what's Dr. Nathan up to? I miss 2021 or 2022, wherever she is. In 1988, Riley tries to talk to Josh. All right, wanna get out of here? Hang on a second, Josh. It's cool. No need for a talk. I'm sorry, okay? It's just, this whole thing feels like this really bad nightmare that I can't wake up from. And I'm afraid that when I do, the newspapers are still gonna say 1988. Oh, you gotta be kidding me. What? I don't understand. A sinkhole never opened up with the Hollywood sign in 1988. No, it didn't. But if this sinkhole's anything like the one in La Brea, we may have found our way back to 10,000 BC. Partway through this talk, she picks up a newspaper, and Josh sees the front page, which says a sinkhole opened and swallowed the Hollywood sign. So the opening took place in 1988. But you already knew that, right? I mean, like, they practically rubbed your face in it when the dad said that it was hot outside. From the L.A. Times, September 5th, 1988, Uh, 110 degrees ties hottest day ever recorded in L.A. Boosters may tout Southern California as paradise, but when downtown Los Angeles reached 110 degrees on Sunday to tie the hottest civic center temperature ever recorded, the city bore a closer resemblance to Dante's Inferno area hospitals reported at least seven cases of heat stroke and one child with respiratory problems related to a first stage smog alert that was declared along los angeles county's southwest coast hundreds of thousands who sought refuge at the beach found massive traffic jams and 90 degree readings on the sand that could only be termed cool in a relative sense others never made it there the freeways were lined with overheated vehicles and people who stayed home with their air conditioners helped send electricity usage to a record high for a Sunday. But even that didn't always work. Several thousand Southern California Edison customers found themselves without power when 425 transformers were knocked out. The normal high for this date is 84 degrees, according to the National Weather Service. So, as I mentioned, Eve got captured by the exiles, but Lucas, Levi, and Veronica are free. So Lucas takes Veronica to the clearing where, I mean, best case, everyone is kind of ambivalent about her being back. Sure, she helped find the cow with Scott last season, but I don't think that had the reputation saving impact that they hoped it would. It was more like, oh, nice, a cow. And Lucas is back too, but he was so bratty with his mom that I couldn't be too psyched to see him without Mary Beth. But then maybe that gives the two of them a lot to have in common. Levi broke away from these two and he got himself caught intentionally so that he could hang out with Eve. And this is where we steer into an ending. We have Scott and Aldridge coming up on the building. She hits a button upon drains and reveals stairs into the ground, which is a way into the building. Aldridge and Scott's dynamic is kind of silly. She does a thing, and he's, like, so impressed and excited. I'm not criticizing his excitement, but I don't think her ego needs more stroking, either. After Team Gazella leave the Rhinos, they find chunks of the Hollywood sign. Welcome to Hollywood! What's your dream? And Izzy spots the Peterson Automotive Museum in the distance, which means that, well... They decide it means that they landed closer to Los Angeles than they thought. But could it mean something else... Either way, they head toward the clearing, and in a preview for next week, we see that they made it there. Oh, and Josh and Riley, well, before the end of the episode, they steal a bunch of stuff from the house that they were in, and they head off to who knows where. What just happened? Let's start simple with this, okay? What do we know about the Aldridge building? Which is not called the Aldridge building, I know, but so far, that's what we're going with. According to Silas, it's 30 stories tall and it's made of glass and steel. According to Aldridge, the people in there will want to kill her and there's an underground entrance. According to Logic, it doesn't belong in 10,000 BC and we have no clue what or who could be inside. I can't imagine many companies renting office space in 10,000 BC, so we have to assume that all 30 floors have a purpose. I work in a six-story building, and at its least filled, there's probably 10 people in it. At most, there are probably 300. Taking those numbers, we could guess that maybe 50 to 1,500 people could be inside that building, and I'd err on the lower, closer to like 500. So what are these people doing in there? What do they eat? Where does their waste go, and why aren't they discovering this building in an archaeology dig In 2022, that's actually a very good question. Another question has me jumping the gun. That is, will Lucas and Veronica be our season two shipping couple? They both seem a little unstable and they both seem very alienated. And while it sounds like it could be a dangerous pairing, I think that it could maybe be good. Lucas swore that he would start a new good life and Veronica continues to recover from trauma and shame. I think they could maybe be a good source for healing for each other. That's actually a very good question. And who are those guys that I called Guardsmen because I have no idea how to find appropriate descriptors? They are called the Exiles, which we know from a preview, but like, what's their deal? They seem a little more advanced in their technology, and they also seem to have a mastery of metalsmithing. From Forge Magazine, industry leader in forging a manufacturing process involving the shaping of metal using localized compressive forces... The first evidence of smithing by hammering iron into a shape is a dagger found in Egypt dating to 1350 BC. Although in Egypt, it was likely the product of a Hittite tridesman. The Hittites likely invented forging and tempering, and they worked their ironworking techniques in secret. When the Hittites were scattered, their iron working skills were spread to Greece and the Balkans. This early Iron Age occurred around 800-500 to 500 BC. The myth can also be found in classical mythology of the Romans, Greeks, Phoenicians, and Aztecs. So are these exiles from a different time? Or are they Egyptian? And I know that you're saying that sounds stupid. But it leads me to my next question, which is a multi-parter. That's actually a very good question. Are they really in Los Angeles in 10,000 BC? Oh, come on! I know, I know. I sound like either a moron or someone from QAnon. (laughs) But hear me out as I get my red string and bulletin board ready. One vote for a yes is that whole archaeology dig from last season. The plane crashed it showed up in the ground in 2021 so that is a clear vote for yes but when team gazella jumped in the hole outside of seattle they landed closer to los angeles when the hollywood sign got swallowed it kind of moved closer to the shore because it's between team gazella and the la brea clearing unless the la brea clearing also moved when it fell This could explain all those fast trips between the Clearing and Topanga last season. Also, just for the record, woolly rhinos didn't exist in America, so how is geography related to the holes? And how is time related to the holes? Is everyone getting dumped in generally the same time and the same place, but coming from different times and places? Sure, 1988 to 2022 isn't that long compared to 12,000 years, but still, we got Civil War gold, we got maybe these exile guys... And if they are in fact in ten thousand BC and in Los Angeles, is time and space folding in on itself and is Los Angeles the center of the universe? That's actually a very good question. I told you it was a big question. Digging deeper. I was expecting some new blood in season two, but without any noobs so far, let's spotlight Silas. I feel like we have lingering questions about Silas himself, but we'll talk about what we know based on what we've been told. NBC.com can do that for us. The answer to who Silas actually is is ever-evolving. The mysterious old man likes to keep details about himself close to his chest, but we do have a few answers about his identity. It turned out that he is Isaiah's, a.k.a. Young Gavin's, grandfather, and the two arrived in 10,000 BC a few years prior without Isaiah's parents, who they say died when he was a baby. They'd been living amongst the Tongvae, which are apparently the fort friends. I didn't know that we actually assigned them the historical name of the Tongvae, but um, they'd been living with the Tongvae ever since until the Sky People arrived via the La Brea sinkhole. And we later learned from Aldridge that she and Silas are former colleagues and leading scientists related to the sinkhole's creation. Aldridge even stole Silas's map of the sinkholes across California to give to Lily, a.k.a. young Ella. If you buy that, I got a bridge I can sell you in Brooklyn. That is a phrase, right? So Silas claims to be Gavin Zaya's father. But we have no proof of that except for their beards and their haircuts. And I won't accept their relationship until I know the story of Gavin Zaya's parents. I don't even know if I believe that they arrived in 10,000 BC together. And now adult Gavin is going to be hanging out with his adult grandfather in 10,000 BC. So that's kind of cute, but I wonder what their dynamic's going to be like. For some reason, I do believe that he worked with Aldridge. That map seemed to be pretty accurate, but he also doesn't seem to be too willing to talk about his sinkhole knowledge, his role in their creation, or anything else for that matter. All things considered, he strikes me as someone who's been betrayed, either by people he trusted or by his own work or intentions. Did he willingly leave the scientist group that he was part of, or did they boot him out? In some ways, I see him as sort of a neo-Luddite who may have rejected technology because he saw what it could do, but with that betrayal of what he trusted, he's also come across as very suspicious of others and very angry. Maybe when Gavin shows up, Silas's spirits will turn around and he'll soften up. But we will just have to wait and see. In the Media Reviews I know from headlines that the ratings dipped for the Season 2 premiere, but I don't know if that's fair to draw the correlation because... Again, it did so good on demand that hopefully the Peacock numbers are pretty solid and we will get a whole season out of this show. And I don't know if you felt the same way as me, but at least two writers did. So I pulled a couple of quotes from Pajiba.com, which calls itself an independent entertainment site. The co-founder, Dustin Rolls, said, Are we sure this was the La Brea Season 2 premiere? This week, NBC aired its second season premiere of La Brea, and for a season premiere of a series that hasn't aired an episode in 10 months, it was it was weirdly underwhelming. There wasn't much of an attempt to further the mythology, introduce a new twist, or even highlight a new relationship dynamic. Given where the first season left off, the premiere felt anticlimactic. I get the need to reestablish the characters and remind us of where we left off at the end of the first season, but... But the premiere didn't even dazzle us with stupidity. It was just kind of there. Hmm. I feel like this is a fair assessment, which is why I'm hoping for a dazzling episode two. From cartermatt.com, which may not be super famous, but is very eloquent, we have the ending remarks of their coverage of the show. The delicate balancing act that La Brea has can be described as follows. There is a real challenge towing the line between being silly slash next-level weird and presenting a mystery that makes sense. Through everything we get in this story, the latter will matter eventually. It does feel like the show has expanded its larger world in season two, and the risk there is creating more confusion. Yet there's also a chance that this could serve to tie a lot of things together. We'll have to see how the writers execute it all. And that's what we come to the show for, to see how the adventures will evolve and how they will all sort of tie together and make us feel satisfied. So that's it for the, so that's it for the season two premiere of La Brea. I hope that you enjoyed the show here today. A small warning, I will not be able to do a show next week due to some personal commitments and some time constraints, but I will come back with a podcast episode about Season 2, Episode 2, and 3 in a couple of weeks. If you would like to contribute to the show, ask some questions, anything like like that, you are welcome to email shout at yallheard.me. That is the official email address for the parent podcast to this podcast, which is a show that I do with my friend Marissa Phillips. It's called Y'all Heard. You can find out information about that at yallheard.me. If you like this show enough that you want to throw money at it then you can also sign up at patreon.com slash y'all heard but for now keep your feet on steady ground and stay tuned to La Brea and this podcast but if you had to pick one i mean you may as well make it this podcast because it's a lot shorter than the La Brea show is have a great week <laughs>